Not long ago, as I was doing research for the story of the cosmos, I ran across an article, a journal, that examined Scientific American titles of astrophysics articles written between 1990 and 2014. Some of the titles of the articles that appear in Scientific American include these. Here Come the Suns, Stellar Bells, Goldilocks, Black Holes, Origami Observatory, Moonball, Star Gobbler, Cloudy with a Chance of Stars, Whispers from Creation, Black Hole Blowback, Crater Jumper, and in an October 1994 issue, By Jove. There is the state of the universe of the 21st century in a nutshell, a universe that continues to tell its story as we cannot help but read along and respond in kind with wonder and awe. The journal article that I found goes on to note, however, that over half the titles in the Scientific American use specific literary devices in an attempt to get the reader's attention. Fifty-nine titles use prosopopoeia, the personification of an abstract object. Forty-seven titles use metaphor. Twenty-six titles incorporated synecdoche, a part of something representing the whole of something else, as in Jesus saying that the cup of wine in his hand at the Last Supper is the new covenant in his blood. Other rhetorical devices the researchers found in these articles included double entendre, circumlocution, and antithesis. Commenting on one title from a 1992 article on gravitational waves called Catching the Waves, the researchers noted that the author was literally playing with the word wave. They point out how Quote, three complementary meanings may be at stake. The literal meaning of a surf expression, the figurative meaning of understanding and behaving according to the most modern fashions or using the most innovative techniques, and finally, the actual meaning related to the possible detection of gravitational waves. End quote. Jesus himself told his disciples that he had been communicating to them in, quote, figures of speech, end quote. After all, as the incarnate Logos, he is the Lord of language. The Bible is a treasure trove of divine irony, satire, circumlocution, antithesis, metaphor, and paradox. Biblical language, like the titles of the Scientific American articles, is written in such a way that anyone can read them. They invite inquiry, interpretation, and careful examination. And it is only my personal conjecture here, but if the Lord Jesus uses figures of speech in communicating with the people of his time, both verbally back then and in the written word today we know as the Bible, how much more so then might the heavens themselves be filled with prosopopoeia, double entendre, metaphor, simile, antithesis, synecdoche, and circumlocution? On this episode of Good Heavens, Wayne and I explore some of the mysteriously intriguing anomalies in Big Bang cosmology. We also discuss how we see the heavens and the earth interwoven with the narrative of God's glory and his love toward us in Jesus. 
The universe isn't just a science experiment, and science isn't the only way we can better understand the universe and what it's all about. It may seem odd at first to consider, but we suggest that literature and poetry are equally suitable means of expressions when it comes to the cosmos. After all, the pre-incarnate Word of God spoke creation into existence. Perhaps if science was more of an interdisciplinary endeavor, maybe combining art, literature, beauty, and the imagination, that it could better understand the universe today. It was the youngest Nobel Prize recipient physicist Paul Dirac who believed that beauty was very much an integral part of the truth of a mathematical equation. So come and see how we think God's love is woven into the tapestry of the universe and how it all points to the glory of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Good heavens, Wayne. This is our second podcast done remotely. How are you today? Good heavens. Uh, we're, we're at it again, Dan. We good are to, at it again. Uh, good to try, do it again. It is good to do it again. We are going to be talking more about Big Bang Cosmology. Uh, is that correct, Wayne? We are going to be talking about Big Bang Cosmology, right? Yeah, and we were, we're going to focus on the science. How does science, uh, is the science on the Big Bang really good or not? Yeah, there's some, uh, there's some mysteries. Now, the Big Bang is the predominant model of how the universe came to be. And uh, last episode we did in part one, we gave some, we talked about some scriptural differences between the Big Bang cosmological model of how the universe came to be and, uh, and the Bible. And uh, one thing we're going to talk about today and remind our listeners is that no picture of the universe that science gives us is actually the way things are as God sees them. So we're not saying that there's anything, we're not saying that it's bad to have a model of the universe, but just a reminder that Big Bang cosmology is but a model of the universe not necessarily exactly how the universe is as God would see it. And uh, Wayne and I, I think Wayne, we, we would agree that sometimes, and not, not all scientists and not all people do this, but sometimes this, we get the idea and impression from modern science that, that it can give us the actual picture of the way things are, when in truth it's only giving us a model, an approximation of the way things might be. Would you agree? Right. We, the best that human beings can do is always send some sort of approximation to things. Mm -hmm. And uh, God sees it the way it really is. That's right. And, and there's no... There's we, don't, we don't see it all. We, have, we always go on limited information. That's right. Uh, yeah. So we're not saying that we're not, we're not um, you know, this is not a, a treatise against science. Uh, or are we being critical of scientists? Um, but we are, Wayne, you know, of course, you know a little bit more science than I do, but, but, but the, the Big Bang model is communicated to people at the popular level. And uh, it's a very much part of the toolbox of a lot of Christian apologetics as well. It, it seems to be something for people that confirm, uh, that, that nicely dovetails with Genesis, uh, where God tells us uh, that, that the universe had a beginning, that he created the universe. But uh, as we said last time, 
there are fundamental differences between the way in which we, God reveals to us that the universe had a beginning and the way in which modern models reveal how the universe began. Because I think we agreed last week, we talked about how uh, with Big Bang model, uh, the general presupposition, the general idea behind it is we want to explain how the universe came into being naturally. We're sort of looking at the mechanics of the universe. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But where it differs for some people is that the mechanical explanations become substitute, substitute explanations for God. I think it was physicist Paul Davies who said uh, in an interview uh, on the, the, the PBS series Closer to Truth, Paul, Paul Davies, who is a physicist who's not a Christian, he said part of the reason for creating the idea of a multiverse, like the, the uh, many universes from which our universe came, he said, was to get rid of God, to finally get rid of God. That's not all the motivations of every scientist who works in cosmology, but it is a driving force for a lot of cosmologists and scientists who are atheists and who wear their atheism on their sleeve, that they use science against the Christian faith as though science is somehow capable of disproving God's existence or something. Right. Um, and, and Dan, we, you've interviewed some people, some scientists on good heavens who, yeah. who are Christians and believe the big bang. And I don't, I don't mean to attack them personally. We are not, we are not, we are so not. I'm just saying the main thing I'm really concerned about is first that uh, if there are things that don't fit the big bang, then let's be honest about it. Right. If, if something is not confirmed, let's say so. Sure. And uh, if there are people with science backgrounds, I don't like, who have developed other approaches and other cosmological models. Yeah. Let's not exclude it from discussion. Right. Um, out of hand. Yeah. And because the history of science demonstrates that a scientific idea has uh a shelf life, right? It has a, an expiration date. It's going to change. Scientific ideas that have been the dominant ideas have changed. Uh, right. the, the most dramatic one in our history is the idea of uh, heliocentrism versus geocentrism for since the time of Aristotle until the 16th century, uh, you know, a period of 2000 years or so. Uh, the idea was that the universe or that, that the universe was centered upon earth. Earth was the center of the cosmos and what a radical paradigm shift that uh, was discovered by uh, Copernicus and later Kepler and Galileo and, and Tycho Brahe. They were working very diligently between two worlds where that paradigm was slowly turning from a geocentric earth centered model to a heliocentric and sun centered model that we go around the sun, how crazy it seemed to people that the earth was moving. You know, you could go out and do an experiment and like, come on, look, the earth is not moving. If it was moving, we could feel it. So that was a radical shift of a paradigm that had been in place for 2000 years, Wayne. Yeah. That was like the truth is Stranger than fiction. It really is. Yeah. And so Big Bang has only been around. uh, If you want to go back to Hubble in the 1920s, we're we're approaching, this model has only been in place for about 100 years. And so that's really remarkable in the history of scientific ideas. Big Bang is a very young comer. It's a very young uh, model. It's a very new model in terms of how science progresses. And uh, so we just want to today explore a little bit of the anomalies um, in, in a respectful way. 
without denigrating other Christians who accept the Big Bang or, or denigrating other scientists who are not Christians. Uh, we're not making fun of anybody. We're just saying, hey, these are some pretty cool things to explore. And uh, maybe one of our young listeners, Wayne, might, uh, <laughs> might hear of this and solve. We might be speaking to a future Nobel Prize winner who will solve some of these mysteries. Oh, yeah, who knows? Who knows? But uh, we, do have a, we do have a younger audience. I know sometimes from the comments I get from people that uh, yes. like it. I, I think I told you. I, I'm, very, I'm very happy that we have. Yeah, I think I told you this on, on Twitter not that long ago. Uh, a mom was had tweeted me. She follows me on Twitter and listens to Good Heavens. And <laughs> I think she, her son, this is before coronavirus, and her son was, uh, she's driving her son to school. And uh, she was putting on a podcast in the car when they go to school. And the son, who's five or six, I think, said, Mom, uh, put on that astronomy podcast. I want to learn something today. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> she, great. You he know, was talking yeah. about Good Heavens. So I was like, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, it's a so, great thing for parents to listen to with their kids and talk about. Yeah, we, we try to be very, very family friendly. And, uh, and so today we're just going to talk about, uh, have a great time talking about some anomalies in Big Bang cosmology. And Wayne, we should say that neither you nor I are, uh, have any alternative theory at present necessarily. Well, you do. But we're not, we're not saying that, hey, hey, we got it all figured out we're, by, by bringing up these things. We're not saying that we have it all figured out either. Well, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have everything in cosmology figured out, I'm Ooh. sure. No, uh, I don't. But I, I, uh, I, I just I take a, a biblical approach, and I, I believe uh, God created supernaturally. Yes. But that um, doesn't, that doesn't um, mean that uh, observations from science are, are invalid. I try no. to sort out the observations and kind of separate that from the theory. Yeah, and that's an important distinction to make. There are basically two kinds of ideas in science. You can do observational astronomy. We had, um, uh, not too long ago, we had Dr. Guillermo Gonzalez, who's a planetary scientist. He does a lot of observational astronomy. That means looking through telescopes and looking at what's actually out there. Mm-hmm. And, and that's one important aspect of, cos- of, of astronomy. But now there's the difference in, uh, so cosmology more, is more theoretical. It doesn't, it, it does use some observational data, but it also, there is a lot of theoretical information being utilized because there are just some things in the universe that we cannot see, like the beginning, you know, we can't recreate a universe in the laboratory, thankfully. So a lot of the discipline of cosmology is theoretical. And that's not a criticism. It's just an acknowledgement that there are two ways to do science. You can have a theory, and then you can actually do observation, and then you can build theories from the observation. And so they're kind of intertwined, but, uh, but, but yeah, the distinction is important, theoretical versus observational science. Speaking of scripture, uh, we want to begin, um, before we start rambling too much, we want to begin with scripture. If you have your Bibles with us, you can turn to the book of Isaiah, and we're going to read what the prophet said beginning in chapter 40, uh, the 21st verse going all the way to verse 26. So Isaiah 40, verses 21 through 26, and I am reading from the New American Standard. And Isaiah says, God says through the prophet Isaiah, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the vault or the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. 
it is he who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Scarcely have they been planted, scarcely, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their stock taken root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither, and the storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me, that I should be his equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high, and see who has created these stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name, because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. And I'd just like to add 27 here for encouragement, people, because in the context, the next question God says is, why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? In other words, God is reminding Israel that he created the universe, named all the stars, keeps track of all of that. So how, Israel, how is it, my people, that you think I have forgotten you? I know where you are. Right. God I created you. What's going on? Yeah, I created you too. And if I've named the stars, how much more value are you than, than, a, than a star? God names you. He numbers all the hairs on your head. He's created the same one who's created the universe has created us too. And so he's very much aware of where we are, who we are, and he knows what is due to us. He, he knows the justice that he will give us. And that, of course, that justice that he's talking about there is Jesus, a forward looking to the Messiah, to Jesus, the justice that God will accomplish for us in Christ. And of course, this weekend is Good Friday, Easter Sunday weekend. Um, Wayne, if you don't mind... I wanted to read a sonnet from an English poet named Malcolm Geit, who, who okay. is a, he's a poet, a priest, a singer songwriter. He's the chaplain of Girton college and the associate chaplain of St. Edward King and martyr in Cambridge. And uh, he's the author of a book called faith, hope and poetry. And I'm actually going to be interviewing uh, Malcolm uh, for the apologetics profile podcast uh, next month. Okay. Uh, but his poetry is awesome. And uh, he talks about... So so poetry and cosmology can go together, right? They can, Wayne. Thank you for clarifying (laughs) that, because some people at this point are going poetry and cosmology and science. Yes. Um, And so today is Saturday. We're recording this on Saturday, which is the day after Good Friday. And um, Jesus is laid in the tomb, so uh, he's dead. The second person of the Trinity who came down to earth... Uh, for us on our behalf has died. And it is this point in the disciples' lives that they're, I think they're planning a trip back to Emmaus at some point, uh, you know, and they all seem to think that this whole thing has come to nothing. So Malcolm Geit writes this sonnet called Jesus is Laid in the Tomb. And he says, here at the center, everything is still. Before the stir and movement of our grief that bears its pain with rhythm, ritual, Beautiful, useless gestures of relief. So they anoint the skin that cannot feel and soothe his ruined flesh with tender care, kissing the wounds they know they cannot heal with incense scenting only empty air. He blesses every love that weeps and grieves and makes our grief the pangs of new birth. The love that's poured in silence at old graves, renewing flowers, tending the bare earth is never lost. In him... All love is found and sown with him. A seed, 
in the rich ground. So he's talking about Jesus as the seed going into the ground who dies, of course. Uh, this, this sonnet talks about the, the women preparing Jesus for, for burial, anointing and caring for the body, uh, weeping and grieving. All seems hopeless, dark, lost, and still. But God knows what's about to happen. God knows what's going to happen. God knows what's going to come out of that grave. How can, Wayne, the idea... This is, this is the remarkable centerpiece of the Christian faith, that out of nothing, out of death, out of darkness, out of gloom, out of grief, out of the last point for humanity, right? Death, grief, darkness, loss, nothing, comes new life, comes this seed, comes this creation of life out of death. And so I think when we're talking about the universe, and we'll get into this, that the very fabric of the universe demonstrates a forward-looking to what God will do in Jerusalem, in that grave, in that garden, something from nothing. Uh, right. Li- so life from the, death. Uh, yeah. Then the, uh, the disciples at the time thought that it was all defeat and uh, right. they had lost their, their master and uh, it was kind of over. But, uh, Jesus brought life out of death and showed that he was, it all happened the way he predicted. Right. And it looked like the authorities had triumphed. Rome had triumphed. The Jews had triumphed and had finally silenced this itinerant rabbi who was going around stirring up trouble. Uh, it looked like it was finally over. The disciples really are confused about what's going on. Um, you know, nobody knows what's going on. And their teacher died. So what in the world are we to do now? Um, And it was all hopeless. There was nothing they had. They didn't even understand what was going on. And so I I think the very idea that that in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, um, what you have in in, in a macrocosm there is is a forward-looking to the gospel. Because what does he say in verse 3 of Genesis? And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And that is what we have with the tomb and the resurrection. From darkness, from death, from nothing, comes light and life. Jesus rises from the dead. That's wonderful, yes. So I think that is, for me, that's what what the fabric of the cosmos really is supposed to draw us toward. Of course, there are many references in Scripture to the glory of God, and who is or what is the glory of God, but Jesus himself. Um, And so the very fabric of the cosmos points to the glory of God, and the glory of God is is God in Christ Jesus. Um, This is not something you're going to see at all (laughs) in a Big Bang cosmology. They're just looking for for naturalistic explanations as to how the universe came to be. You know, Wayne, you know, poetry, of course, is, is not something you're going to hear in Big Bang cosmology. You know, most people are just looking for that naturalistic explanation of the, the mechanics of things. Uh, they're not necessarily interested in the mechanic, per se. Um, but so 
let's get into, as we've pr- been promising, let's get into the, some of the, ano- the anomalies, uh, some of the mysteries within uh, the Big Bang model. And we can start with some things that, uh, that you have there, and we'll go back and forth and hopefully have a lively, thought-provoking discussion. Uh, so what do you have, Wayne? Where do you want to start? Right. Well, I want to start with uh, something that was published called an open letter on cosmology. This was published in New Scientist magazine in May of 2004. So this is uh, 16 years old now. But what happened was there's a number of well-known scientists who uh, signed their names to this letter that they agreed with it. And it started with 30-some names, I believe. And then over the years, other scientists and other people with technical backgrounds uh, signed it. And I don't know if people are still signing it today, but I know it got to over 200 names. And these are people with really good technical background. And they're not people like me who, you know, I'm a creationist and I'm a Christian. And most of these people would not be Christians necessarily or creation. Okay. Okay. So this isn't just a, uh, a bunch of believers protesting the, the uh, secular scientific establishment. Right. It's, it's mostly secular people. Okay. And, and it's not, uh, well, some of them are Christians and some of them are not, but uh, they're not of, of the flavor of, of what I am. Okay. Necessarily. So th- there's a lot of people it has been all, all along through, the years since the Big Bang was proposed, there's always been some scientists who didn't like it because they were not convinced by the science. Mm -hmm. It's not usually uh, the Bible that convinces someone to not believe the the Big Bang. Mm. It's the science that convinces people not to believe it. So it's it's kind of the idea that there are so many um, different... Uh, problems with the theory that they start questioning the theory, not because they are necessarily Christians, but because the theory has some holes in it. Right. So I want to read part of this statement. And yeah, we uh, can uh, we can link this whole thing to uh, to your article. Um, so I think we'll, we'll do that in the podcast and at the bottom of the information. You can click on and find the letter yourself, right? Yes. And on, on okay. my website, there's an article called Science and, and the Big Bang. Uh, where I wrote about this, and I give a link to this uh, open letter. So on my website, again, is creationanswers.net. You go to uh, science articles and then astronomy, and then you see an article that's uh, science and the Big Bang. So uh, let me read some of this, Dan, and uh, this is this says it uh, pretty eloquently here. The Big Bang today relies on a growing number of hypothetical entities, things that we have never observed. Inflation, dark matter, and dark energy are the most prominent examples. Without them, there would be a fatal contradiction between the observations made by astronomers and the predictions of the Big Bang theory. In no other field of physics would this continual recourse to new hypothetical objects be accepted as a way of bridging the gap between theory and observation. It would, at the, at the least, raise serious questions about the validity of the underlying theory. But the Big Bang theory can't survive without these fudge factors. Without the hypothetical inflation field, 
The Big Bang does not predict the smooth isotropic cosmic background radiation that is observed because there would be no way for parts of the universe that are now more than a few degrees away in the sky to come to the same temperature and thus emit the same amount of microwave radiation. Without some kind of dark matter, unlike any that we have observed on Earth despite 20 years of experiments, Big Bang Theory makes contradictory predictions for the density of matter in the universe. Inflation requires a density 20 times larger than that implied by Big Bang nucleosynthesis, the theory's explanation for the origin of the light elements. And without dark energy, the theory predicts that the universe is only about 8 billion years old, which is billions of years younger than the age of many stars in our galaxy. What is more, the Big, the big Bang Theory can boast of no quantitative predictions that have been subsequently validated by observation. The successes claimed by the theory supporters consist of its ability to retrospectively fit observations with a steadily increasing array of adjustable parameters. So in other words, to break that down, that they're theorizing about what they think could have happened from the limited data that they have observed. Right. And then they, they compare this to the old idea of Ptolemy's epicycles. So yes, it says, uh, uh, it retrospectively fits observations with a steadily increasing array of adjustable parameters, just as the old Earth-centered cosmology of Ptolemy needed layer upon layer of epicycles. Mm -hmm. That so was before that's what we. That's I was going to read there. Yeah. Well, that's great. And and the to clarify, the epicycles was a, a sort of a medieval way of trying to figure out why the the visible planets look like they moved back and forth in the sky. They'd go they go one direction, stop, and go another direction. Of course, now we know why that is. But before we understood. Uh, this before the 16th century, the 15th, 16th century, um, and, and Kepler, of course, uh, they had these strange theories of epicycles, circles within circles, orbits within orbits, trying to explain why the lights in the sky seem to go backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. Uh, so, so basically the letter is saying um, we should, the discipline of cosmology, science should be more open to other possibilities. Uh, a very reasonable proposition. Um, so the hard thing is, Wayne, I think the challenge is, it seems to be that uh, if you're working in the fields of science and cosmology, that this would, it would be hard to propose a, a different theory uh, about what's going on. Um, dark matter and dark energy are two unseen entities for which we have not s discovered any particle or, or anything. It's just an observational uh, fill right now to explain some of the things that the Big Bang can't explain. Um, so let's be specific about some of these mysteries, if you will. And I'd like to start with uh, something we're both a little bit familiar with, which is population three stars. Um, that'd be a good place to start. You want to start there? Right. So uh, this goes back to uh, Big Bang theory about how stars kind of evolve, you might say. So this has to do with 
where the uh, metals and high atomic number elements come from. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the Big Bang itself, you can't you can't get all the elements. Uh, you you can only get hydrogen, helium, and maybe a little lithium, and all the other elements, like metals, you know, carbon, uh, oxygen, uh, oxygen, a lot of important atoms that we really need. Nitrogen. Uh, nitrogen, they can't form in the Big Bang. So where did, where did the, the metals and all these other atoms come from? Well, they believe they would happen, they would form in the supernovas of explosion, exploding stars. Yeah, so, so that you, need to, you need stars to die in order to produce these, what, what they call heavier elements. So the periodic table of the elements is what we're thinking about. And there's a hundred or so elements on there. Uh, many of them, all of them beyond hydrogen and helium are, are heavier than hydrogen and helium. Um, and the early universe, the theory as it goes right now, says the early universe could only produce hydrogen and helium and not any of these other elements. There must have been a different way for these other elements to be produced and right now, the only way that we know that these get produced in naturalistic explanations is that suns, stars explode uh, and send all their detritus out into the universe and form the heavier elements. Is that a correct summation of that? Yeah, but see, it's kind of a, an evolutionary kind of idea. So the idea is that yes. the, the first stars were called population three. Uh-huh. They, would, they would be almost totally hydrogen, helium, and, and almost nothing else. Yeah, so let's, let's pause there for just a second and emphasize this is, this is, this is very important because what Wayne's about to say is pretty mysterious. Population three stars are the first stars that are believed to have formed in the early universe. And because there was no other heavier elements, these first stars, theoretically, could only have been made of hydrogen and helium and a very trace elements of other things. But... These are the first stars in the universe, hydrogen helium stars called population three star. Um, yes, and so you can, you can kind of think of these different types of stars in terms of how much metals they have. Yeah. So the mm-hmm. population three stars would have no metals. No, no heavier elements. Yes. And then there's a, a group called population two stars, which would have a, a low amount of metals and other elements. And then to what stars that we really observe today would be called population one stars, which have a certain a pretty usually predictable amount of metals and other elements in them. So how did they, how did this all, all happen? Now the, uh, if, if the, the big bang uh, happened, you would expect that when you look at the, the, farther and farther stars, the more, more and more distant stars, the most distant stars at the most distant parts of the universe we can observe should have fewer metals because they would be more like these population two or population three stars. Now they, they would probably say most of the time that the, the population three stars would not still exist because they would have gone through their, their hydrogen fuel very rapidly. And these, so Dan, you know, you might know this, but bigger stars have a short lifetime. Right, right. They're like the- They burn through their fuel fast, like like big SUV or something. Yeah, yeah, they're they're the gas guzzling SUVs of the universe, according to stellar formation theory. These these things have to be young. but, But what they should be able to observe is that 
the most distant stars should have fewer metals. Right. Uh, they should be um, closer to the population, three stars, less metal, more lighter elements, correct? Right. And that's not actually what they observed. Uh, mm -hmm. It's been amazing how we've been able to observe more and more distant objects. And, and you can learn something about what a star is made of from the spectrum from the star. You can look at the light and you get, you get the, uh, the dark lines out of the light that comes from star and you can f figure out what elements are there. And it turns out the most distant stars we know of are just like the ones everywhere else. They have the same, uh, the same general makeup of heavier elements present within them. Right. And there's another issue that's brought up about population stars is that those early stars would be very massive stars. Huge. And uh, how come they didn't turn into black holes? Right. Or this is, this is the other head scratcher um, that there is at present time, absolutely zero observational evidence that these stars ever existed. Yes. And that to me is like, well, if all of these stars had to go supernova, if there should be some left, if we can see the most distant light in the universe, uh, the cosmic microwave background radiation, uh, theoretically, we should still be able to see, as you said earlier, uh, as we go farther back into the universe, these earlier stars should look more archaic, like dinosaur bones, uh, mm -hmm. no nothing like the stars that we see closer to us. But in fact, as you say, these actually look, have the same characteristics of stars that are closer. But the farther back we look, we don't see any leftover population three stars. We don't see any leftover population three stellar remnants of supernova. There's just not a single physical trace of these stars that are theoretically so necessary for the existence of all the other stars. So that is one significant anomaly about Big Bang cosmology. Yes, uh, and we're not we're not saying that that they can't solve this problem. We're not saying, oh look, population three stars don't exist. Therefore, God does. <laughs> we're not we're not doing God of the gaps here. We're just simply addressing some of the mysterious anomalies of Big Bang cosmology. Right, um, and there's going to be different opinions and all these right, things that I'm bringing right, up. Right, right. Uh, uh, the question these are these have been longstanding issues. That yes. Have, not um, these issues have not disappeared over the years right right so we're not by bringing these up we're we're not doing god of the gaps we're simply discussing at a very popular conversational level of of some of the issues that are facing big bang cosmology today i would like to bring up one did you get all that you wanted to get in on population three stars there was there something else you wanted to um well, one of one of the points about this is that there ought to be a lot more black holes in the universe than there are. If all of these star, a lot many of these population three stars, turn into black holes, this would be so many black holes that it would be comparable to the number of normal stars. Mm. And uh, there's nowhere near as many black holes in the universe as normal stars. Yeah, um, there seems to be a disproportionate. Uh, a lesser amount, if you were going to predict these massive stars going supernova, you would expect to see a lot more black holes on average than, than we do. Um, so one thing, one of my favorite anomalies about the Big Bang, which I will admit, it's not that easy to describe, but I'm going to try to do it here. So forgive me uh, if I botch this. But I want to talk about the anomaly 
in the cosmic microwave background radiation. So briefly what that is, is the earliest light that we can detect in the universe. And it surrounds us. They sent up uh, two satellites uh, not that long ago that have pulled down basically the same data. This is the most distant light in the known universe, in the visible universe, that they call the cosmic microwave background radiation. And it's explained as though this is the leftover light from the initial expansion or Big Bang of the early universe. This is the leftover light particles from that early creation event. Now, it's interesting. One thing is interesting, that all of these light particles uh, are of uniform temperature. That's an anomaly. That's kind of strange. Uh, 2.7 Kelvin, I believe it is. So how, how is all of this light that surrounds us at the very edges of the universe everywhere we look, the same temperature? That's a mind bender. Um, the other one is that scientists, if you think of the universe as a, as a, uh, uh, a sphere, you think of the whole universe, the visible universe as a sphere, and think of that sphere covered in this microwave background light. What astronomers have done is they've divided up this light and studied it in sections. So the first, first thing they did was that they cut the, the, the data, they cut all the light in half, and so they looked at one half of the sky, and they looked at the other half of the sky in terms of the temperature differences of this microwave background radiation. So this first slicing in half of the cosmic microwave background radiation is called the dipole. They literally cut the sphere in half and they looked at the temperature in the top of the sphere and they looked at the temperature of the light below the sphere. And what they came up with was pretty fascinating that there seems to be um, a hotter than average temperature above our galaxy, the Milky Way, and a lower than average temperature below our galaxy. Now that's just kind of, it might be a fluke, but why does this temperature variation look like it's directly above the Milky Way and directly below the Milky Way? Because if this is the earliest light in the universe, it should not have any impact on where our galaxy is because this is the ancient light before anything was formed. But so here we have light above us that is kind of hot and, and light below us that is kind of cool. And it seems to be what they call the dipole axis, kind of like a, a line drawn right through uh, the middle of these temperature differences. And then the astronomers broke up this light into four sections. So they, they did the division of two sections and then they broke up the light into four sections. And guess what they found? When they broke up the light into four sections, they found equally cool, hot, cool, hot temperature variations lined up like the equator on the earth. You have cooler temperatures, hotter temperatures, cooler temperatures, hotter temperatures. And so not only do you have this dipole arrangement and access, you have this quadrupole going the opposite direction. So the dipole is the top and the bottom and the quadrupole is the left and the right. And there's this crazy alignment of the dipole and the quadrupole of this temperature in the cosmic microwave background radiation. Now, was that a fluke? How was that possible? Well, it's, it, that's not it. That's not the end of it. They also divided up the light into eighths. So they cut the sphere into eighths, and guess what they found? This is what they call the octopole. They found hot, cool, hot, cool, hot, cool. 
eight sections of light divided up and they noticed that the temperature variations lined up just like the quadrupole. So they have this ridiculous three times they've demonstrated that this light temperature wise is aligned in such a way that, that seems it seems with the data that we have that the Milky Way galaxy is right in the middle of all of that. Now, I, I don't know if I'm doing the explanation justice, but that alignment of temperature variation is what they generally, I think it's what they call the axis of evil because it's such a frustrating problem. <laughs> Where did Yeah, this... they did, really didn't like this. No, uh, but it's, it's like, how does this, how does this, how is this possible? Is this a fluke? And, and nobody knows. Uh, but it, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't fit the, uh, it doesn't fit the data. You of... don't, no, you don't expect if there was a general expansion of the universe, early universe, you would expect a chaotic amalgam of different temperature variations of, of background light. But you have this very distinct arrangement that appears to be, uh, that appears to, to make our Milky Way central, uh, you know. And, and so, so what they did was, now you might think, well, this is just a fluke in the, in the measurements. Uh, but the two different satellites that went up to measure these things were completely different teams, different methods, uh, different technologies. Um, one was more sensitive than the other, and they got the same data. They had the Planck satellite, and then they had the, the Wilkinson microwave antenna, um, both of which were, were different teams, different technologies, different so ways they've of cleaning. They've confirmed, confirmed these this. This is yeah. not uh, a technical fluke of just one study. This is out there. And uh, that's, that's just a mystery that, that the Big Bang did not. No one saw that coming. Yeah, a lot of scientists are having trouble believing this, but it seems right. to be very much it seems to be legitimate. Um, but, you know, and I will go back to this. If you assume God created everything, uh, then what you're discovering is God's particular arrangement of light. That's what cosmos means. Same word where we get cosmology. It means arrangement. And so, you know, for Christians, this, this should not be a surprise to us because God does arrange, as we read in, the, in Isaiah, God arranges the stars. God arranges the universe. He stretches out the heavens. Of course, it is going to have imprints of design and arrangement upon it that we can recognize, right? Yeah, and uh, Dan, in the Big Bang Theory, uh, our position in the universe is not supposed to be anything special. No, we're told repeatedly that it's not. So this kind of uh, speaks of a special position or a special um, place in the universe. It does seem to be. There's, there's something else that I was going to bring up that's kind of related to this, Dan. Uh, I mean, it's the same kind of problem in a sense that it speaks of a special position, perhaps. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's something called quantized redshifts. Yeah, explain that. That's pretty cool. So this is another thing that's been very much confirmed in observations. And what happens is uh, there's been a lot of efforts of kind of mapping, at, mapping out galaxies in the universe to see how they're arranged, how are they uh, distributed, you know, and they're not just randomly scattered across the universe. Galaxies are in clusters. We talked about the uh, structure is too big for the Big Bang and superclusters of galaxies. Right. We had a, a podcast about that. Mm -hmm. And we, we were astonished how big these clusters of clusters of clusters get. Oh, it's, it's ridiculous. It's well, insane. Kind of, kind of related to that. But what, what's happened is they, they found that 
you know, the redshift of a star or a galaxy is related to its distance. So there's a famous law that was uh, uh, measured and, and discovered back in 1920 or 30 by Edwin Hubble uh, that uh, the velocity of a star at, toward or away from us is related to its distance from us. So mm-hmm. the the redshift tells you about that velocity. If you if it's all from the motion, you, the redshift when the redshift is bigger, it means that the star is farther away. Well, now, and when they talk about Hubble's law, that's a, a little simple equation about this. And Hubble's constant is a constant that they talk about a lot in astronomy, that relates that velocity to the distance. Yeah, and that gives us the idea that the universe is, that's where they get the idea that the universe is expanding or running away from us as we can see in all directions. Right, so most stars and most galaxies would have a red shift. There's some have a blue shift, but mostly red. So that, um, anyway, but the galaxies have seen what seems like preferred distances from us, that they have hmm. a preferred, preferred red shifts that happen in multiples of certain numbers. So the farther back we go, what, we, what, we, what you're saying is that when we look back at galaxies at X distance and Y distance and Z distance, they seem to have a, uh, their redshift seems to have a, a sort of mathematical ratio, right? Yeah, so the X, Y, and Z distances you're talking about are not random and they, they are multiples of number of a number and so it's quantized. It's, That's fascinating. They're using the, the same terminology like in atomic physics, but to describe the redshifts of galaxies. And this, is, this has been very thoroughly confirmed uh, in observations. And it's kind of a statistical analysis of redshifts, data and galaxy information. And, and it's, it's a mystery. Uh, I think scientists... Have kind of um, kind of ignored it. Uh, a it lot. is a fascinating. I mean, it, again, it, it, this, as you say, it tied into the the structural idea of this uh, microwave background radiation light. Yeah, uh, and so one uh, kind of obvious way to uh, interpret that, Dan, would be to say that our galaxy is somewhere close to the center of the universe, that, and that there were there were created. Uh, shells of galaxies. I'll be darned. Beginning, and in the concentric spherical shells of galaxies. So here we have two two different kinds of data that both seem to suggest uh, a a central location in the visible universe that we know of. Right. It's like uh, the the galaxies are the, like the layers of an onion. That's amazing. That's, now, that's amazing. a kind of ridiculously simple analogy. That, <laughs> but it's a good it, one. <laughs> but it, the idea is that uh, the galaxies would have started in certain layers like this, and then mm. they, they've sort of, they've kind of spread out some a little bit. Since yeah. Beginning. But they, it was an orderly arrangement, and it also puts us at the center of things in a special position, which is kind of like what you were saying with yeah, the a cosmographic special position. And I always say, I kind of use the, the, the simple analogy, like in the beginning, Jerry Jones made AT&T stadium and seat one a, 
C one A, right? Yeah. This so is, so you would this is you another would say, argument for C one A. Right, right. So so if if Jerry said seat one A, everybody'd be like, "What's seat one A all about?" Right? It's probably the best seat in the house, right? Or yeah, something. I could like never that. have that seat. Right. <laughs> Nobody's going to be able to spend that seat. Maybe that's Jerry's <laughs> seat. I don't know. Uh, but but that's the analogy. If you if you if you described ATT Stadium that way. Uh, certainly people would be intrigued by what's so special about seat 1A, right? And um, yeah, it's like, it's like saying the stadium was made for, so that we can sit in seat 1A. Right. Seat 1A gives you the best view of the entire stadium, right? Yes. Uh, and that's kind of where, kind of where uh, the earth is. I, I, th- I did an episode with Guillermo Gonzalez. Uh, y'all can check that out. It is, uh, it's fantastic because Guillermo says uh, in our interview, he, he says the earth is uniquely positioned for us to be able to do astronomy. I mean, we, uh, can, all things considered, where we ended up as a planet, uh, our observation deck is pretty cool. We got clear view all around us. Um, Wayne, it, it brings me to, we were, we we're talking about the structures of light. We're talking about galaxies and, and uh, the microwave background radiation and stars. All are various forms of light. And of course, uh, uh, the, the Christian physicist in the 19th century, mid to late 19th century, James Clerk Maxwell, was uh, was the one who who showed that electricity and magnetism were the same thing, and that 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 produced light. There's another anomaly with electricity and magnetism uh, that Big Bang did not predict or anticipate. And I want to sort of break this down really quickly, and I hope I can do it justice because I'm not a physicist, but we'll try. So basically. Uh, in 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 this uh, classical electric and magnetic field ideas, so electricity has fields and magnetics have fields, and so there seems to be a nice symmetry there between electric and magnetic fields. Right, they go together. Maxwell showed that electricity right. and magnetism are are kind of one and the same. So it seems like there's a nice balance there. Um, but here's the problem. So if you have a electric field, an electric field produces a magnetic field. This is what Maxwell showed. And a changing magnetic field produces an electric field. Fine and dandy. That's pretty cool. That was monumental discovery. But there are differences. And I'm reading from uh, Luke Barnes and Geraint Lewis's book, uh, The Cosmic Revolutionary's Handbook. It just came out. Uh, the subtitle is How to Beat the Big Bang, and they talk about the anomalies of these things. And so I'm getting this. They do a very good job of breaking this down. But here's the problem with the magnetism. So static electric, static electric, excuse me, I can't talk today. Static electric fields are created by electric charges. That's one thing. But here's the problem. There are no magnetic charges that create static magnetic fields. And so Luke and Geraint say, if the universe possessed a particle with magnetic charge, or what they call a magnetic monopole, as it is known, then the equations would be wonderfully symmetric or beautifully symmetric. Magnetic fields would emanate from these charges and electric fields would be created by currents of magnetic charge. But alas, they say, all searches for a magnetic cousin have drawn a blank. In other words, Big Bang says there should be magnetic monopoles, these magnetic particles. Um, but there aren't. Yes, and Dan, when I was in graduate school, I was in a, uh, the, stu- the physics students, grad students were in a, a little club, 
Mm. And we, we went on a trip to Chicago to Fermilab. Mm. We, fun. we looked at various exper- experiments and, and things there. And one of the things we, we visited was the magnetic monopole experiment at Fermilab. Wow, how fun. And it was a huge apparatus. It's sort of like uh, multiple, many, many layers of detectors trying to detect certain kind of particle decay that would be evidence of magnetic monopoles. And, mm. and they never had any successful uh, observations. So there's been a various attempts over the years to, to detect magnetic monopoles, and mm-hmm. there's, there's never been any success with it. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's another wonderful mystery. And again, just to clarify at this point in the discussion, we're just talking about, um, I, I, I don't think I could say it enough because some people might misunderstand what our agenda is here. We're simply pointing out some of the anomalies in Big Bang cosmology without going so far as to say, see, it's all a mess and everybody who thinks of it is crazy. We're not doing that at all. Uh, these are just fun things to, to, to look into um, and, and to, 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 to dig into. Um, so we've talked about the cosmic microwave background radiation. We've talked about population three stars. We've talked about magnetic monopole, the missing magnetic monopole. There you go for alliteration, MMM. Um, <laughs> How about let's, let's talk about antimatter. Let's talk about antimatter. Now, that's a fun subject as well. This was something that was discovered by, I believe it was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think Paul Dirac, the youngest Nobel Prize recipient in the 30s, I think, uh, got his Nobel Prize for the discovery, if you will, of antimatter. And I might be getting that all goofy, but um, basically, Big Bang says that all things being equal, there should have been an equal amount of regular matter. That's the stuff that you and I are made of, the stuff that stars are made of, and an equal amount of anti-matter. Um, and Paul came up with this idea, I think, because he just assumed that the mathematical equations that led him here should be balanced. And so if there's a, if there's matter, uh, there should be antimatter, but the problem with matter and antimatter is that if you bring a regular matter in contact with antimatter, in other words, (laughs) if you were to travel to another universe and and you, you saw your antimatter self, don't shake hands. You think coronavirus is bad. (laughs) (laughs) If you shake hands with your antimatter twin or doppelganger, you will explode. Both of you will be annihilated. Both of you would be annihilated. (laughs) So yeah, let me explain a little more about that. Yeah, yeah, please do. Please do. So this comes from an idea in quantum physics called pair production. So there are certain nuclear reactions where there's a kind of complex series of things that happens and you can have gamma radiation that uh, is uh, the, the radiation gets wiped out and what is created is a pair of particles that mm-hmm. one of them is the normal matter and one is the antimatter particle. So mm-hmm. it could be, it could be an electron and a positron. Got it. Yeah. So, so that an electron is negatively charged. A positron would is be positively charged. The same amount of charge as the electron, but Negative. Positive instead or positive. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, 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 right. And their spins are opposite. So antimatter is sort of matter turned on its head. Mm. Um, mm. Uh, opposite charge, same mass, uh, and uh, in some ways they have similar properties, and some of their properties would be opposite. Mm. So you could even have anti-hydrogen, uh, so where you have 
the protons are negatively charged and the, and the positrons are, are orbiting the nucleus and they are positive. But so it's important to say that I think, uh, correct, correct me if I'm wrong, Big Bang predicts that there should be equal amounts of matter and antimatter, correct? Right. So the important thing is in pair production, you have to get the same number of particles of the positive and the negative, the, the, the normal matter and the antimatter. Got it. So, and this is an idea for how in the early stages of the Big Bang, you didn't have uh, normal matter for a certain period of time. All you had was radiation mm. and high high energy. And it was in the Big Bang, Dan. It took hundreds of thousands of years for the all this radiation to cool down enough so that atoms could stay together. Right. Particles could not hold together at these incredible temperatures. Yeah, the high temperatures were, were too high to, to to come together and to form things. So the Big Bang starts with just intense radiation. That's all it is, you could say. And then, so supposedly the uh, the gamma radiation would uh, cause pair production. Mm-hmm. And you'd have um, normal matter particles and antimatter particles created in equal numbers. So they've tried to come up with some theory for how you could have an imbalance Yes. Why would you, is there some way that you could have more matter particles than uh, antiparticles? Right. And they've never successfully really nailed it. And the reason I say they they haven't really succeeded is because over the years, and you you don't see this over a period of a year or two, Dan, this is, this is the kind of thing that you, you have to observe the research over, many years to see what they're doing that they they adopt one explanation for a period of years then they change and adopt a different explanation for a period of years and they don't really settle down to one answer this is uh still a problem today and there was uh an attempt just recently i was reading an article about uh, what's called anti-hydrogen. They actually created anti-hydrogen and watched what happened to it. They were trying to find some way to explain how we could have normal matter, but no antimatter. But in the universe, the, the real universe that we observe, there's almost no antimatter. And if, even, wow. if there was, even if there was a, let's say there was a special pocket of antimatter in a certain place in the universe, it wouldn't last. It would get wiped out. Mm. There's no way you could keep normal matter away from it. Wow. So that is another deficit that that our universe seems to be, uh, I think the term is asymmetrical in this regard. Yes. Let's let's assume that uh, there was matter and antimatter that came out of the Big Bang. uh, And somehow there was some, some imbalance so you would get more matter than antimatter. Well, what happened to all the antimatter? That antimatter would create gamma radiation. And what happened to all of that? There should be huge, intense amounts of gamma radiation that we don't observe. Uh, there is a gamma ray background radiation in the universe, but it's very, very faint. It's not like what would be expected if you had all this pair production of particles in the Big Bang. That is, uh, 
it's a mystery. It's fantastic. It's a head scratcher. It's fun. It's what makes science exciting. And I know, and you know, and I know that there are people that love to explore these things and people that are dedicating their entire lives to trying to figure out uh, why these things are the way they are. So, you know, that's the other thing, Wayne, I think that uh, I think demonstrates and resonates uh, that there is a creator is that you have so much time, energy, money, and devoted to uncovering and deciphering and learning more about these cosmic mysteries. Uh, yeah, we, we don't have all the answers. No. And, and that's okay. And, and we're not, we're not saying that because we don't have, we have all the answers, therefore God exists. We're just simply saying that the cosmos was created uh, to be a little colloquial here, like a good Easter egg hunt. <laughs> you know, you get some clues and you go on a hunt. Uh, but this one is a lifetime for so many cosmologists and scientists. Uh, this is a lifetime endeavor. This is a mission. Uh, this is a, a thing that God has given us so that we may explore. I think it's Psalm 111:2 too, that uh, great are the works of the Lord. They are explored by all who, who love them, you know, who enjoy them. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what good science is. It's a recognition that God is the creator. He has made the universe intelligible. He has given us these things uh, for, for us to explore and for us to enjoy and, and ultimately for us to know about his glory. Uh, so I think we've covered quite a bit. If your head isn't spinning by the end of all this, uh, <laughs> go back and listen to it again. <laughs> um, but so Wayne, I want to wrap up with, uh, you know, tomorrow, I know people are going to be hearing this um, I'm going to try to get this out tonight. I think I'm going to be able to do it. Uh, tomorrow for us, as we're recording this, tomorrow is Easter. And I want to conclude with uh, Malcolm's poem on Easter dawn, the resurrection. And I want to kind of tie it all together. Um, and this is speaking of Jesus's resurrection. This is Sonnet 15 called Easter dawn. And Malcolm Geit writes, he blesses every love that weeps and grieves. And now he blesses hers who stood and wept and would not be consoled or leave her love's last touching place, but watched as low light crept up from the east. A sound behind her stirs, a scatter of bright bird song through the air. She turns but cannot focus through her tears or recognize the gardener standing there. She hardly hears his gentle question. Why, why are you weeping? Or sees the play of light that brightens as she chokes out her reply. They took my love away. My day is night. And then she hears her name. She hears love say, the word that turns her night and ours to day. And I love what uh, Mr. Geit says there about the play of light and the the darkness and the light turning light taking light bringing light out of darkness and uh, of course he's he's talking about mary here and she can't see what's going on she she doesn't know what's going on she misunderstands jesus as the gardener her perception is is very limited she she doesn't know what's going on right uh, she watched as low light crept up from the east so there's this whole play on light here in this poem that leads her. Right. And, to, and it's really uh, amazing, Dan. The one who said, let there be light in the beginning mm. is the same one who uh, became, came down into our world in our form so that he could uh, suffer in our place and right. 
uh, rise from the dead so that we can have a relationship right. with the infinite creator God who made the universe. Yeah. And so the idea, Genesis 1-3, let there be light is a proclamation, uh, not of science or physics necessarily, but of love. That, yes. that the play of light comes from the one who is love himself. God is love, as John says. And uh, this goes back to what we were reading, what began our broadcast with Isaiah, that the one who names all the stars calls us all by name too, right? If God names the stars, he, he names us. And That's that right. when he hears, that when we hear him speak our name, it turns our night to day. God says, let there be light in our hearts, in our darkness, in our difficulty, in our yes. times when we can't perceive that, that God is playing, not in a cruel sense, but is, is leading us through the darkness uh, to himself. And so I think the fabric of the cosmos is uh, a way woven with the narrative of Jesus' incarnation, life, death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, yeah, that makes the universe not such a uh, kind of harsh thing. That's, no, it's not impersonal. It a, it's a personal thing. It's a more of a, a communication to us about God. It's a poem of light. From mm -hmm. it's a stanza of light. It is a. It is. It reveals the nature and the depths and the complexity and the power and the creativity of God. It is. Uh, I think probably the 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 one uh, truth from medieval cosmology that rings forth still relevant today in our generation is how Dante concludes his, uh, his, his long, you know, uh, his divine comedy with the love that moves the sun and other stars. And I think that's exactly what ultimately uh, the study of cosmology and, and astronomy in the heavens should lead people to the love of God in Christ Jesus. So Wayne, we'll wrap it up here. That has been a, it's been a, a phenomenal uh, whirlwind tour through the mysteries of the Big Bang and how it all fits together in Christ. Thank right. you for uh, for taking the time this morning. I have enjoyed it as always. And uh, we will see you next time on the next episode of Good Heavens. Good Heavens. Good Heavens is a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For other great conversational topics on apologetics, other religions, cults, and worldviews, be sure to check out our Apologetics Profile podcast on Patreon, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Podomatic. And for a plethora of helpful apologetic resources, be sure to visit our website at watchman.org. That's watchman.org. If you would like to sponsor the Good Heavens podcast or the Apologetics Profile podcast, you can visit both of our websites at patreon.com slash goodheavens or patreon.com slash watchmanfellowship.